Hello, and welcome back to the Legends podcast with me, Sarah Faruya of SF Creative and Sarah Faruya Coaching, where I am rising like a phoenix from the ashes after a one-year break to season seven where our theme is legends of reinvention, stories of renaissance, and the phoenix rising from the fire. I believe there are many ways to lead a life and everybody has stories. So let's get into these creative musings from Sarah and her guests. Enjoy. Hello and welcome, welcome, welcome to this, the new season of Sarah Faruya Creatives, Legends podcast. After a long break of almost a year, we're back today and I'm so excited to introduce my guests to you in a moment. So this season is all about reinventions, transitions and the phoenix from the flames. And I believe that there are many ways to lead a life and everybody has stories and boy, are we going to hear some fantastic stories today. So I'd like to welcome Kath Elliott. She is the alcohol mindset coach. She's Australia's leading specialist alcohol and binge drinking coach for high functioning professionals. I love that high functioning professionals bit there and I'll tell you why in a minute. (laughs) After she stopped drinking in July, 2019, little did she know that just six weeks after taking her last drink, she would be forced into a whole new mode of reinvention and transition. She rose not only to be an alcohol free, but also find herself with an entirely new, shocking and unexpected identity. This has brought us to where she is today, alcohol free, the alcohol mindset coach and a vocal advocate for the dangers of alcohol, especially for women and especially with regards to cancer. She's certified in this naked mindset coaching or this though this naked mind coaching and she's a senior alcohol coach with the this naked mind institute and she's a founding member of alcohol coaches australia since her reinvention she has been interviewed on numerous podcasts aussie tv shows studio 10 hello sunday morning 3aw693 news talk and appeared in the age newspaper she was also my alcohol coach when i quit drinking 1 year ago and today the release date of this is one year since we spoke for the first time and I entered into what I didn't know at the time was going to be my alcohol-free sober journey. I know that Kath has some different terminologies around those and I'll ask her about that later. So please welcome Catherine Elliott. Yay. Thank you, Sarah. What a beautiful welcome. It lands so, yes, so warmly in my heart when I, um, yeah, just see you across the screen and and where you are now and the 12-month journey that we have experienced through our relationship together. So thanks for inviting me onto the podcast. Oh, it was was a no-brainer for me to start again with you, actually, because it's such a huge transition for people. And I've really been thinking about it because we're just in season change now from summer to autumn here. And of course, you're in season change there from winter to spring. And it's always a time of kind of resetting or thinking about things and changes in nature. And it just was a no brainer for me to have you on as my first guest and to mark this. I'm really proud of it. Actually, one year without drinking, I could not have imagined this this time last year. Yeah, it's amazing what we can't imagine for ourselves. And then we look back at that version of ourselves and think, wow, look how far I've come. And I completely relate. I I turned 50 
last year and the 40-year-old version of myself never would have imagined that I would be turning 50 having already been alcohol-free for three years. So that's the incredible thing about being a human, isn't it, that change, we transform and we never really know what is going to happen. The uncertainty of life is is quite frightening, but it's also incredibly exciting. Wow. Love that. I really, I've been listening to you nonstop. I feel like a stalker for the last two days and your like optimism and positivity just comes through and your warmness towards human beings comes through so strongly that I feel like I'm absorbing a little bit and I just got goosebumps there. And from a coaching perspective, I want to highlight this phrase. It's amazing what we can't imagine for ourselves. That's so juicy. I'm going to, I'm going to put that into my kind of morning contemplations. What can I not imagine for myself now? I mean, I turned 52 years ago and had a real boozy blast full on till four in the morning party. But that would be very different to this year when I just spent it quietly with my family in the countryside and both were brilliant. So it is amazing what we can't imagine for ourselves. That is quality. Yeah, I know. And this is the thing. We've got to keep curious about ourselves, right? Because if we don't, we do get very set in conditioned patterns and alcohol and drinking is is one of those. So Kath, my first question to everybody on this season will be, tell me a story of reinvention that you have found interesting or inspiring. Could be somebody you know or admire or just a famous story of reinvention. This is so funny. I didn't even look at these questions beforehand. And so this one's so happy about that. Spontaneity is the best. I looked down at it and I went, oh my gosh. Yes. So the first and that's why I love sometimes it's better to be spontaneous, isn't it? And see what intuitively. Oh, yeah. So when I literally glanced down at that question about a minute or two ago, the first person who came into my mind is actually a dear friend of mine who I have known probably since I was around 13 and I have just watched this incredible transformation in her from someone who was incredibly caught in trauma and a victim mode and drank a lot of alcohol but was also addicted to many other substances and drugs to actually reclaiming a life for herself that she is now so proud of. The first step to that was actually cutting away from her family of origin being independent, changing her name from her family of origin's name. She picked a new name and really believing in herself that she could create her own family and her own identity. It's just been remarkable to watch her. She has now just trained. She's about to finish her study as a a teacher, a primary school teacher, which was a dream that she had when she was much younger, but didn't think she'd be able to do it. And she has just applied to go and work at a remote school in an Indigenous community 
it'll probably be somewhere in northern, northeastern or northwestern Australia. And it's just such a brave move. She's going on her own. And I look at where she's at now and just see the incredible transformation and reinvention that she has created, not only through her name and her identity, but energetically as well. When I used to be in her presence, although it could be really fun and when we were partying and all of that sort of thing, it was also very heavy and very victim and very selfish. Now she's just the most warm, loving, giving, courageous person and she's vulnerable and she shares it all. So it feels really special to be able to speak about her on this podcast because she was an inspiration for me in my own journey, my relationship with alcohol. I always looked at her before I decided to really take action in my own drinking as such a beacon of light because she made this choice before any of this sort of sober movement was had really gathered any type of energy or storm. And um, that was the start of her changing her life. It was taking alcohol out of her life. And then the ripple effect that has happened since that particular choice has just been remarkable. Well, that's an incredible story. I'm completely overwhelmed by it, actually. I had a little tear in my eye there as you were talking about that. What a, in terms of transition, family of origin stuff is so sensitive. And to remove yourself from family of origin is so, it happens a lot more than one might imagine. I run a grief circle and often people are estranged and that creates very difficult grief. And I think there's grief around family of origin stuff a lot. But that transition is such a a courageous and difficult and full-on move to be able to become yourself fully. And the other thing I want to comment on is you, Kath, sticking with somebody who is heavy and negative and sticking with somebody who brings that and being able to stay with that and have the backbone for it. It's so good and so unusual in this kind of latest wave of coaching, which is all about good vibes own, things like that. You know, it's such an old fashioned, honorable move to stick with somebody who's going through that and then be astonished by their, what they couldn't imagine for themselves is actually happening. I really love that story. It's so, it's so humble. Thank you. You know, and it, it just reminds me of this point that she shared with me. She always said to me, Kath, I felt like you had a vision for me that I didn't have for myself and that you held that there for me. And I think this is another really important point. You know, sometimes we need that person in our life. If we can't necessarily be there for ourselves, that someone can see that for us and that they hold that vision or that reality because it will happen in time. You know, it is there. It has happened in a different alternate. <laughs> if you believe in all of that, that sort of stuff, um, which which I completely do, and so I really held firmly to the belief that she would be there in this reality that I am in now, and and she is, and just been incredible. And 
it's also another example of relationships and friendships throughout our lives and how important they are and how they change and how we can have an incredible impact on each other's life and growth and transformation if we're there with love and compassion and loyalty and not a lot of judgment if possible, I guess. That's my biggest working point there is the judgment piece, I think. And of course, you having worked with me, you'll know that. And I think that was one of the unique things of working with you, Kath, was that I just did feel a complete lack of judgment from you. Besides discerning, I think one of the first things I sent to you was, I want to manage my drinking. (laughs) And you simply said, if you continue the way you are, it's not going to turn out well. Now, for somebody who's not kind of ready, that would sound like judgment, right? But for me, that didn't feel like judgment. That felt like somebody saying to me, sort your shit out, girl, in a really, really good way. And then another time I said, I think I might just go to this event and have just one or two drinks because I think the wine's going to be nice. And you said, can you just have one or two drinks? (laughs) And I was like, no, I can't. (laughs) It's like a lack of judgment, but a really strong sense of honesty and discernment. And I think that builds trust amazingly well. Um, And you obviously did that for your for your friend as well. It maybe it's something that kind of it was inherently in you that coaching brought out even more strongly because it's very important. But being able to hold a vision for somebody, I mean, we're only like 20 minutes in and I've already got full body goosebumps twice. So <laughs> FBGs for the people who know, who know my uh, my practice already, FBGs and holding the vision for somebody else, that is at the core of coaching, I think as well, but at the core of being a really good friend. And I think it can really help somebody. Well, it certainly helps me and I don't have the words for it now because you've just introduced this idea to me is to help you to really stick with somebody who's going through a hard time while at the same time protecting yourself. Because if you can hold the vision for them, then that feels like heaven. (laughs) Don't know where that came from, but there it is. No, that's really beautiful because sometimes if we are stuck in the the reality of where the situation is that is at at that point, we can get very caught in our judgment. And judgment has been a big area that I have had to work on because my family of origin, there was a lot of judgment. And so I still have to do an incredible amount of work on, I have a like a master saboteur, which is a judgment one that is constantly trying to get back control in my mind. And so I've done lots of work on it, but if I don't do the work or I don't actually have the awareness or mindfulness, it comes in very quickly and starts to, yeah, try to run the show. (laughs) I'm starting to feel personally attacked, so I'm going to move on to the next question. So we've just mentioned family of origin. So why don't you tell me a little bit about your background upbringing and the influences in early life? What was that like? I've also heard you talking about where your drinking journey started, which was very early, very similar. And I also, before we jump into this, you don't need to comment on this just now, but how similar a lot of binge drinking stories are. Like it seems to be the same story, but with different details in. Am I on the right track here? I'll see you smiling. Oh, yeah, unbelievably so. So over to the question. 
Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, so my family of origin. So I am the oldest of four children, the only daughter. I've got three younger brothers, one who's two years younger, then another one two years younger, and then another one that was about nine years younger than me. I was always a very, very independent, fiery personality, very assertive. And my parents had a a very traditional relationship in many ways. My father was a doctor. My mum stayed home and looked after the house and and the kids. But I never saw my mum as a housewife because she was super intelligent and managed all of the financial side of mum and dad's life. And I witnessed mum and dad always having very balanced conversations about everything in life. It wasn't dad was the breadwinner. So, you know, he gave mum housekeeping or whatever. It was very much mum was involved in it all and mum ended up helping dad run some of his medical practices. But I think independently she could have been very successful as a a lawyer or an accountant or something like that. She had incredible memory and she loved reading and all the details and all that sort of thing. My family life was really very happy. We we grew up in a pretty privileged area in Melbourne and I went to a, you know, a private girls' school in Melbourne and I was popular at school. I was academic without being, you know, like ducks of the school. I had that mix of, I guess, being quite smart and academic, but also a bit naughty, you know, so I would get Saturday detentions and wag school and do a bit of that sort of stuff. But then I was also very intent on, you know, doing well at school. And I've had a close relationship with my brothers and we've always got along. We're not super close as in joined at the hip or anything, but underneath it all, my parents have given us what I would say is a a beautiful moral code that we all share, which has enabled us to trust one another and to never doubt that we would always act in each other's best interests. And that is actually a really beautiful gift in my family. Both my parents are incredibly loyal, loving people. I have felt like a bit of a black sheep in the family because The rest of my family are very, in the way that they think they're very logical and practical, I have that side to me, but I also have a deeply intuitive spiritual life that I have developed and really followed and I think they think I'm a bit woo-woo and a bit crazy. They have started to love that about me, but I know that they kind of sometimes I'll be like, yeah, I'm going on this this retreat with Reiki healing and, you know, very all these other different things and they're kind of like, oh, okay, I've never heard of it, you know. <laughs> Your dad, the doctor's like, good luck with that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. The drinking though, interestingly, on my dad's side of the family, there's been a genetic sort of drinking issue, not in my mum's family. My mum never really drank. I never saw my mum drink. She's not a binge drinker. She's a very 
normal, if we can even use the word normal, but we had to drink every now and again. My dad was more of a binge drinker and his two brothers were both had a very problematic relationship with alcohol and that was obvious from a very early age and when they, they're both, both my dad's brothers have passed away now and I'm sure they would have lived a lot longer if it wasn't for their really problematic drinking. And I think what I now see looking back is that I definitely, from the time I started drinking when I tried alcohol at 14, it was definitely this, it was kind of this love-hate sort of relationship with alcohol. I loved the oblivion and the letting control, letting go of control. That part of it really gave me an escape from my mind, you know, from the control, the discipline. It was like, this is giving me permission to just not remember, to let loose, to have a bit of fun. And that messaging for me was very, very prominent until I decided I needed to step away from drinking. And I also got a lot of positive affirmation around the I had a lot of male friends, in, you know, when I was growing up, 15, 16, 17, 18, in my, in my 20s, and they were all like, Kath, you're such a great drinker. You can power down the drinks. You can keep up with us. You don't get too messy. You can back it up the next day and all of the things. And so I was like, oh, you know, being a big drinker like this, I'm, I'm a bit of a legend, right? So it formed a very positive part of my identity as Kath the big drinker, Kath the party girl, Kath the one you can rely on. And so that was really put into my my DNA. I did question it though. Like I, there, there was this other part of me that was like, oh, I don't like the way I behave when I drink sometimes. I don't like how angry I get. I don't like that I forget things. You know, I don't like that I wet the bed. I don't like all these things that I didn't like. And I guess I just dismissed them and thought, oh, well, I'm sure I'll get it under control one day or it doesn't happen enough for it to be a problem. And I thought I'd grow out of it, really. I sort of thought, yeah, I'm sure I'll go out of it once I have, you know, once I get married and have kids and settle down, all those weird, funny little yardsticks where you think, oh, yeah, once that happens, I'll be (laughs) okay. I'll make some mature decisions. And of course, no, it didn't happen that way. And it was because I I wasn't overly prepared to take self-responsibility for it. And Australian culture, even when I was a teenager in the 80s, I mean, binge drinking and excessive drinking, we did it every Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It was a given. No one questioned it. And, you know, I am seeing changes in Australian drinking culture now. Oh, slowly. But it's there. And it's definitely moved a lot more quickly in the last, I would say, five years with the rise of the alcohol free drinks market. But also, you know, millennials. They're not drinking like we were. They're choosing, yes, to drink sometimes, but they're choosing not to drink when they go out sometimes. They're choosing to take periods away from drinking. And so where we are really seeing, I think, a lifestyle culture shift here. But the problem is there are lots of people sort of in my vintage, in their 40s and 50s, 
60s who are now in management roles in businesses and they're still clinging on to this idea that drinking's the way you do business or drinking's the way you connect and make friends and are part of the business sort of deals late at night and that kind of thing. And that can be very divisive and it can exclude other people. I find it really interesting even going through this exercise of looking back you know, at the 14 and 15 and 16-year-old version of myself. And, you know, I have a lot of compassion for her because when I look back at her now, drinking had a very negative impact on a lot of choices that she's made along the way. And I couldn't even say that at 46 when I stopped. I couldn't see it with the clarity that I can now. And so I try to tend to that along the way because there's still some heartache, heartbreak, pain, grief that has to be acknowledged and released and, yeah, catered for. And I'm the best person to do that for myself. And, again, that's been a very, it's been a beautiful gift of an alcohol-free life is that I can tend to myself because I've got more time and space and connection because I slow down. And I prioritise body awareness, somatic practices, so that I can look after and tend to myself and ask myself what I need. I hear such a tenderness in your voice there. And I wonder if those two things are connected. I feel like that young version of you and the young version of me are in the room now. Obviously, I completely got over that really quickly and had no grief. That's one of the things I think that's really frightening about giving up drinking is that it does invite all these suppressed versions of yourself back into the room. And it's hard. I can just remember having, I think maybe three or four coaching sessions in a row with you where I just kind of cried and raged at how hard it was, how much I hated it. And you just held the vision for me. You held the space for me and always brought it back to your area of expertise, which is alcohol, while I was like raging at all the different versions of of myself. But the similarities, if you don't mind, Kath, I'd just like to kind of piggyback on the back of that and tell one of my own stories here, which is about, again, me. I was 14, 15 when I started drinking heavily. And the first time, number one, I was 14, but I looked like this, basically. I didn't look young. So I was the one who was able to go to the and same as you, eldest, one younger brother, professional parents, very loyal and very good at school, but also kind of didn't want that, but wanted something else. Very clever, very bright, very involved in everything. There was some cool element to being drunk. There was something cool about being a drinker. I didn't know that. So I was the one who everyone would be like, oh, Sarah can go the the off license for us, what you would call the bottle shop, what we might call a convenie here, because I looked 18 at 14, even 13. So that was cool check number one. I'm not only top of the class, I'm also the one who can get the alcohol. And then also I was bigger than all my other friends. And I've heard you say this on an interview before as well, there's something really physiological about this is I never threw up. I could drink and drink and drink until I dropped, until I blacked out, until I, I didn't know when that end point was going to be ever. My husband's different. Three or four drinks in, he's done. He's either asleep in a karaoke room or he's he's, uh, throwing up. My body didn't have that. 
at all. So that makes you this one of the lads. She can hold a drink. You know, I can remember one of my boyfriends saying he loved that I could drink pints. And I loved that. I loved all of this. Of course you do. Then it becomes part of your identity. And again, like I was 51, so you were 46. So similar kind of time in life where I was just like, this is completely unmanageable. But even I got taken to hospital at the age of 15 from a party. My boyfriend called my mum and dad and said, I think you better come and get Sarah. Absolutely out of my mind. Had to get my stomach pumped. You'd think that would be enough for me to go, oh, oh, but no, what happened was the phone was ringing off the hook the next day. You all right? So that kind of made me feel like, oh, people care. And not that I didn't think that before, but it was just that association came around and some people came around to play board games with me. It was just after Christmas and my mum and dad were really, they weren't super judgmental, actually. They were very caring towards me about that. There was this whole thing there. It was like, I was super cool because I'd been took to hospital. (laughs) I was getting all these phone calls from people and people came around to play games with me. And 15 year old me was like, this is ace. This is great. And it continued. Does this make sense? It's embarrassing to say in a way. Well, it's not because I'm holding 15-year-old me as somebody who was just looking to be part of the gang. Exactly. We're all just looking to be included and part of the gang and feel accepted. To do that in the cultures and the time that we grew up in, a lot of that was centred and focused on drinking. And that gave us a gateway in there. When I look back at that now, I feel really, really sad for that 15 or 16-year-old version of me who also thought that that was the only way that I would be accepted. And I think that's another thing that's changing is that 40 years ago or whatever it was, it was probably 35 or whatever, but again, this whole notion of sort of wanting to be accepted by males for participating in an activity that they go to pubs and do. It was interesting for me that I felt like it made me more important than others because they looked at me in that way. I was being marked. I remember we used to get marked sometimes out of 10 as to how good a drinker we were by males. And I know that I was always around a nine and a half or a 10, whereas Most of my other friends were not able to get close to a seven. (laughs) I mean, it's ridiculous, isn't it? But at the same time, it almost makes me feel like I want to hold space for that secret, that hidden self, which was the legend and how that kind of comes through now in a different way. It's still there. You still have a kind of legendary sense to you. You're still at the forefront of something. It's not fulfilling any particular psychological need now, or maybe it's just something inherent in you. But that legendary part of you is now doing this amazing work in the world. So I want to honor the legend as well. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, Well, I love that. And I'm a big believer that our life's experiences will often create and take us to transformation or there's an opportunity for us to choose it at certain points in time in our life. And whether we take that opportunity or not is another question. I feel very grateful that I received, whether it was the voice in my head or whatever it was, but I received very direct messaging 
around that it was a very important time in my life four years ago to use whatever lived experience I was going through to do something that was purposeful but also that there was something to really learn about my own life and my lifestyle up until that point that I really needed to do a lot of deep work in those areas and that once I had done that and look, I'm still doing it and I'm still processing it. It's ongoing and it it doesn't stop. But that the commitment to that work ongoing would open up a whole new portal to life in this next phase, which is absolutely what it has done. And so I look at the decision or the choice that I made at 46 and it wasn't a choice I'm quitting drinking. It was a choice of my relationship with alcohol was at such a dysfunctional place and such an unhappy place within myself that I'd grappled with for 20 years. I'd tried moderation. I'd tried having breaks one month off, one month on. I'd tried so many different things. The problem was that it didn't align with the person I wanted to be, I felt like I'd abandoned myself and that it was an opportunity to come back to myself at midlife and really ask myself, what type of life do I want to lead? Who do I want to be? And what does that involve doing now? What do I have to do to create this version or this vision of myself? And what became very apparent was you need to remove alcohol out of your life for an extended period and embrace whatever is there for you to learn. And it's not about having a date to bring alcohol back or it's actually just accepting the uncertainty. This is the thing, the uncertainty of this journey. Because what I liked was I liked knowing I was stopping on a day and I was picking it up again because it meant that I actually didn't really need to do the work because I could justify, oh, no, I've stopped for six weeks. I'm okay. I never really looked into myself, whereas this was like, no, you've actually got to pull back the layers and you've really got to get curious about you. It's not about other people. It's not what they think. It's actually about you and who you are and your values, what you stand for, and particularly going into this next decade of your life in your 50s. And that now feels, I feel like I've been able to really align a lot more with, if you believe that we're kind of born with a a soul and a I guess a true essence of nature. I feel like I've been able to understand and connect in with what is my unique soul. And that guides me now. That guides me. It doesn't mean that life is not challenging or painful or hard. In fact, my life is often painful, challenging, hard. It's everything, right? It's the whole goddamn mess. But I feel in a better place to be able to be with the mess that life is. Because you also have three boys who are various ages from their teens down and a husband and a dog. So 
there's so many things in your system and in your constellation that will vie for your time. And each of those people has their own inner life that's going to influence yours and so on. There's a couple of things in there that I wanted to pick up on. The first one is trying to get one's drinking under control. That is one of the greatest things about not drinking is I don't have to think about it. I think I spent half my day thinking about how to drink, maybe. Oh, what time to start? Will it be beer? Will it be white wine? Will it be red wine? What time? Is it going to be a drinking night tonight or not? When I go out, what am I going to do? When am I going to stop? How am I going to stop? It was just this endless loop. What have we got in? Should I open that? But then also you mentioned something about uncertainty. And for me, when I stopped drinking, certainty was removed because there was a certainty that at some point I'd be able to go, boop, change my brain state from sober to not sober in that first drink. But then the uncertainty that unfolds is wild. I can't even plug into when we first started working together and I was just the amount of feelings, 35, 40 years worth of feelings just flooding in on me. That's not there now, or it still is there, but I understand each of these versions of myself that emerges or shows up and I can't drink down is there to be tended to. And that's actually very exciting work. If you love this kind of coaching, spiritual, therapeutic work, whatever you want to call it, is to kind of deal with that as it comes up and regulate around it. It's amazing. So I listened to many, many podcasts about you and you. your story is that there was a couple of incidences, one with your family when you were on holiday, when you got very drunk and upset your three boys, and one Again, the very last time you drank, it wasn't it wasn't a glass of wine. It was a bottle and a half of wine. And then the next day you stopped. So I don't know if you just want to speak to that a little bit and then tell us what happened just coincidentally. There's often this sort of, um, you know, a, a defining moment or something, even a rock bottom moment sometimes. I didn't necessarily have a rock bottom moment. I had a lot of moments that crept up. But the one that really rocked me was when I was on holidays in 2019. It was a beautiful beach holiday with my my husband and three boys who at that time were probably only around 13, 12 and, and 10, around about those ages. And we went to a friend's house. I drank probably four or five espresso martinis very quickly within an hour. And I was literally, I can remember feeling really, really drunk at the table. And then the next thing I remember was waking up in bed at the apartment we were staying at and my head, the back of my head was throbbing in pain, but it wasn't, it was probably a bit of a headache, but I had fallen back and hit my head on a, it must have been like a big plant pot when I was going up the stairs in front of my three boys. My husband was trying to get me up the stairs, but I was heavy drunk where you can't really even <laughs> move. Oh. And I was possessed by some sort of devil. And yes, I was possessed by alcohol, really. Caffeine, vodka, and um, whatever sweetener you put in the espresso. I've I've got an espresso martini night uh, thing as well, but back to you. <laughs> anyway, the next morning it was, I had to face up to some really hard truths. You know, some truths that had been sitting there under the surface. I knew 
the boys said to me, mum, we're so worried about you. Are you okay? We thought you were dead. Why did that happen? Why were you like that? And I did a lot of soul searching that day. You know, my husband wasn't shameful towards me. He knew that I felt really terrible about what had happened. I made a decision then and there that I was definitely going to take an extended break from drinking and embrace it as something to really be curious about and open to what might unfold in that. I didn't stop drinking straight away, but I did not really have a bad sort of blackout binge like that again. And then pretty much two months later, I had my last my last drink whilst I was watching a football game at home. It was in winter. Again, I drank like a bottle or a bottle and a half of wine on my own. I remember thinking to myself that night, I actually had got quite teary as well because my football team had like won in the last minute of the game and so the emotional regulation was completely shot. So the boys are like, oh, my gosh, mum, you're a mess. And, you know, I was a bit slurry and I went to bed and I remember hopping into bed that night and thinking, oh, I'm so glad tomorrow is that day that I have given myself to start and reset and do something different. And that was the last time I had a drink, the 30th of June, 2019. And then six weeks later. Yes, six weeks later. I was in a pretty good place at this point in time. I was enjoying my exercise and my sleep had improved. We'd had a few social occasions, but they hadn't been that difficult for me because I, in the lead up to this lifestyle change, I had actually taken a number of months over the past two years away from drinking. So I'd done quite a lot of socialization without alcohol. So that bit felt okay for me. I actually enjoyed it because it meant that I woke up the next morning and I felt I felt pretty good. The morning of the 21st of August, less than two months after I stopped drinking, it started like any ordinary day at that point in time in my life. And sometimes you don't know that an ordinary day is actually going to turn into a defining moment in your life. And I remember watching my kids as I walked up the stairs and I thought, oh, you know what, they're not fighting, they're getting ready for school. Life felt good. I was in a rush. I thought I'll rush up, I'll have a shower, I'll get ready, ironically, on a women's health campaign that day. So I thought, right, you've got to get yourself organised. You're running probably half an hour behind schedule. So I went into the shower and it was in the shower where I was just sort of, you know, just having a couple of deep breaths and thinking I've got to get myself doing the checklist in my head about what I needed to do for the day. And it was... In that checklist came this sort of words of, Kath, you need to go and look at your body in the mirror out in your bedroom right now. And I was like, oh, okay, weird. I literally dried myself off. I put a pair of underpants on and walked out to the floor-to-wall mirror that we had in our bedroom and I looked at myself and straight away I could see this dimpled, raised skin, the top of my right breast and my heart just plummeted and I literally was gasping for air and I couldn't even I couldn't even bring the words and then I tried to sort of touch it I could feel it and then I thought maybe I can 
smooth it out. Oh, God, yeah. Maybe it's not really there. Mm. But I did. I, I literally started yelling and screaming out to my husband. I mean, he thought something horrific had happened. And then two days later, you know, I was diagnosed with, I guess it was an aggressive growing cancer. It was isolated to my breast, which was really good news. But I had to start treatment very quickly. I had to start chemotherapy literally four days later. And of course, what happens when challenges come into our life? Normally, we drink (laughs) and dealing with uncomfortable emotions. And these emotions are incredibly uncomfortable because I'm actually dealing with thoughts like, hmm, am I one of those people that might die before they turn 50? This sort of stuff starts to come into your head and you're like, ah, no, I did not have that in my plan. I'm not that person. All of a sudden, it all started. The one thing I will say is I am very proud of the fact that I was just able to very quickly move on from being the victim, being, I guess, really caught in a a story of illness and sickness. And I very much pulled myself out of that very quickly and decided I could create my own narrative around this experience that I was not sick. I had breast cancer and I was going to use this experience to have a physical, emotional and spiritual experience that would bring me a lot of insight into myself and to those around me and to my relationships. It was a conscious decision in the first week and I very quickly moved on to doing all the things, doing all the things in terms of energy healing, massage, naturopathy, kinesiology, journaling, writing, music therapy. I just started to explore reading. I just became this avid reader as well of trying to find out what people had done to people who had much more serious cancer diagnoses than I did. What things did they do in their life? And it became very evident to me that all of these people had one thing in common. It was their mental approach and they changed lots of different things in their lifestyle because it was the combination of maybe some genetics but also things in their lifestyle that had created this diagnosis or disease and that that was the same for me and that alcohol then it came up straight away. Your drinking has been so out of balance. It's been a problem for a long period of time. Could this have contributed to your breast cancer diagnosis? And this, and I thought, oh, I don't know. Is there any real links between breast cancer and alcohol? I thought probably not. I mean, the breast is down there. That's not really connected to the, the throat. Or Anyway, I started to do some research and I was shocked straight away. Hundreds of studies came up around direct links between alcohol consumption, increased breast cancer risk. And then I felt angry. I was like, why didn't I know about this? Why don't we know about this? And I asked my oncologist about it. She said, yes, there is a link, but you don't need to worry about it too much. There was really dismissed. There was nothing asked of my alcohol consumption. Then I stumbled on this fabulous resource out of America called Drink Less for Your Breasts. For me, it was 
this one resource that I could go to that just had all the information in it around why alcohol causes breast cancer. There were statistics. There were papers that had it all laid out. And I thought, okay, this is really fantastic that I got access to this information and that I can use my personal experience to start to generate awareness around this for other people, in other women in Australia who don't know about it because I asked a lot of people and no one knew about it. They were like, I've never heard of this. So that's what I do a lot of work now in Australia in the media but also through the podcast interviews that I do is just around helping women understand that alcohol is a modifiable lifestyle factor that we have control over that can reduce our overall breast cancer risk. So the less we drink, the lower the risk of breast cancer is. And unfortunately, breast cancer is one of the only cancers that they have scientific evidence that proves only light to moderate alcohol use increases risk. So seven standard drinks a week can increase your risk by up to 20% overall. So it's information that needs to be out there. And then people can make their own decision around what they choose to do, right? Because plenty of people will choose to keep drinking, but there's probably plenty will choose either to reduce their drinking or maybe decide, you know what, that risks too much for me to, I don't enjoy it enough or it doesn't feel like the right decision. So that then became this whole area that I wanted to uncover and really get into. And that is a now an area where I'm trying to do even you know more advocacy work with um, the breast cancer charities here because they're a bit hesitant to develop alcohol policies to change the way that they've been operating. I am putting pressure on and asking questions about why alcohol is present at training that I've been to. Love that. Love that. And you know what I love? That character, the legend, the legend you is up going, right, I'm going to take control of this. But also I wanted to reflect on what you said there about the incredible pivot that you made, the incredible reinvention you made of yourself after your cancer diagnosis that you were going to start to dive into all these other things. And I'm putting in mind of on your website, there's a lovely picture of you with this helmet thing on getting treatment. It was that to help your hair. Yeah. So that was called the cold cap. Okay. To um, freeze my hair follicles so that they okay. all fall out. Freezing it somehow stops some of the chemotherapy getting to the roots of all of the hair. And I was able to keep some of my hair. I had very, very short hair at the time, very pixie short hair. I didn't have a lot of hair. I wasn't completely bald. I didn't lose it all. But that contributed a whole lot of extra time to my treatment. And also it was very uncomfortable wearing an ice cap over your head for four hours at a time. While your chemotherapy was going through. Yes. Yep. Another thing I want to note here, Kath, is in systems coaching, we have this levels of reality. So there's consensus reality, which is the kind of science, the 
law, the things that need to happen in consensus reality. Then we have like the dreaming level, which is that where you're like, I'm going to make a decision to do this. Then we have essence level, which is where this, when you said like this little voice said to me, go look at yourself. It's like, where did that come from? Or I'm going to start doing this or close your business down (laughs) or something like that. This essence level. And I see that you kind of tending to all these things at the same time. There's some switch that happened for you where you were like, I'm going to pull in as much stuff as I can here within my means to support the vision I have for myself in the future or the vision that I have for myself tomorrow or the next day or the vision I have for the person that I want to be going through this. Not the same for everybody, but it's just amazing that you had that kind of reinvention so quickly and still touching all those levels of reality. Bravo. It's so interesting. Thank you. I I love the way that you've been able to sort of interpret and describe that. And that's why it feels in many ways, it sounds really cheesy, but it has been such an incredible gift because before I was going through all of this, I was really questioning my life, questioning what am I here for? What is going on inside you? What do you want to be doing? And I felt like there was something about to happen, but I didn't know what it was. And then it came in the version of whatever it came in. You know, it came in the version of me deciding to make a, a drastic change to my relationship with alcohol. And then then the cancer diagnosis came. And I guess it's been a whirlwind. It's been incredible. And I would not be here on this podcast interview now if it wasn't for these life events, I wouldn't be an alcohol coach. I wouldn't be an alcohol coach if I hadn't been a binge drinker at 14. And that's why I look at that 14-year-old version of myself and I go, you know what? Lived experience, again, is so important when we're a coach, when we're supporting others. Particularly, I think binge drinkers like you and I in particular really flew under the radar because we didn't, we weren't looked upon as alcoholics or rehab type drinkers or rock bottom drinkers. In fact, we were seen as normalized and, oh, yes, this is what people do. You don't have a problem. Great fun until it's not. (laughs) Exactly. And I think often it was fun for everyone else. They, they're not there when you're actually at your worst or you're questioning who you are or your anxiety or your negative thoughts or just the fact that you feel like you're wasting a huge amount of potential in your life as well. And this is what I think is so important. Our relationship with alcohol is so individual and unique and that if you do think it's a problem and it's causing you to negatively feel, I guess, negatively look at yourself and feel unhappy, that's, it is a problem. You don't have to tick boxes around how much you're drinking or it's actually about how you feel. I've had plenty of clients who most people would think are not drinking a huge amount, but for them, it started to really impact their lives in a way that doesn't feel good. That's really the most important question to ask yourself rather than trying to tick off certain criteria about number of drinks and are you drinking every day and can you take a break from drinking and these sorts of things because that actually 
is not what it's about. Now, I've seen and heard it all and said it all as well. Oh, (laughs) there is just that point, isn't there, at which you think if you go to something like Alcoholics Anonymous and there are the people there who've gone beyond. And those books that you gave me to read, I decided to just have them here. I started out with this one, Blackout. Then the unexpected joy of being sober was definitely not on my list for six months because there was no joy for me in the first six months. And then there was another one, which was more kind of sciencey, but for a lay person. And in that, they were talking about the gap. I think it says it in these as well. The gap between being a binge drinker and being a full-blown alcoholic is really short. And the step is, I was on my way there. I wasn't there at all. But if I'd continued, it's only a matter of time before it's five instead of six. And then, oh, it's a national holiday, 12. According to this, because of the physical addictions, it's only a matter of time before you get there. How was your transition from full-time PR role to entrepreneurship? And what other reinventions are you going to go through in the future? What's in the offing now? What visions are you holding for yourself, if you don't mind giving us a few hints? Yeah, great. I love those questions. So exciting. (laughs) (laughs) The transition from PR to entrepreneur was, it wasn't too difficult, I have to say. I had so many skills from my previous life in communications and writing and PR and event management and all that that I could bring to this role, this business. I did do a specific training in alcohol coaching with this naked mind, which I absolutely love because I specifically saw a niche in helping high-functioning professional men and women who identified as binge drinkers. And I also coached daily drinkers as well. But binge drinkers was a very much a niche that I wanted to talk to because I understand the psychology. And often what I've noticed in binge drinkers is that their pattern of drinking has started early on in life. As teenagers or young adults at uni, that is where this excessive pattern of drinking quickly and drinking a lot and not having an off switch and often not being that really messy person who's vomiting and all over the place, who's able to sort of look like they're keeping it together. I've been in blackout for hours and then they just sort of pass out but and then wake up and maybe don't have a huge hangover, but there's so much going on underneath that people don't even question or know about and a lot of that is really that shame and, and negative thought patterns. The other thing is that people in their sort of 40s and 50s who have been drinking, still been drinking, it's been a cumulative 10, 20, 30 years of very high problematic excessive drinking. It starts to either affect them from a health perspective or a relationship perspective or something happens at work. So it starts to really show itself and people often get to that point and they'll go, oh, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to change this because I want to, but when I go out and I start drinking, I actually can't. I don't know how to tame the beast. I don't know how to disrupt this pattern of drinking. And I get it because that was me. So I obviously take binge drinkers through and everyone goes through their own process, but it's really about understanding where it's come from 
And then being able to understand your own blueprint of binge drinking and how to get some real mindfulness and awareness around it and the choices then that you need to make to <clears throat> to disrupt to disrupt that and change that and start to do the work on the deeper emotional environmental triggers could be family triggers could be social triggers around this pattern of drinking and then experience life without it and see what that feels like how does what open it was amazing it was almost like alchemy you took me through that process and I was so clear so early on that I couldn't continue one of the things that really triggered me in the same way that you were triggered when you hit your head was I hit my head exactly two weekends ago cut my head open at my friend's bachelorette party. And I thought to myself, went back through the evening and I said, at what point would I have had to have stopped drinking for that not to have happened? What would have been the preventable point between each part? And I was like, the first glass of wine. After the first glass of wine, all bets were off. And that was just such an amazing realization. And the other thing that I love that on your website, under your qualifications, the first thing you list is lived experience. That's so badass. That's the legend <laughs> archetype coming through again. Yeah, my lived experience, move on. <laughs> and then it's this naked mind qualified coach. Then the last thing is like your university qualification or something. I love that. I love that kind of, it's so important, especially with something like this, I think. And what's your mission from now on? The vision that I have for myself is that I would love to do more speaking on stages and talk about, I guess, my lessons and insights through the process of cancer and alcohol-free life and what that has taught me about myself and what has unfolded in that because I think too often as humans we get very caught up in particularly this, this time in our lives, that it is what it is type thing. Whereas I feel like at 50, I'm truly about to live another life and that we can create another life for ourselves. It is up to us. It is not up to anyone else. We can reinvent ourselves at any point in time, but it's about connecting with with ourselves. And sometimes that's really uncomfortable. And you can't do that when you're numbing yourself out on alcohol all the time. I'm so excited about spreading the message around. And it's not about the negative impacts of drinking. It's about the benefits of a lifestyle without alcohol and how empowering that can be. Because for me, I look at it now and I go, you know what, even if alcohol wasn't that poisonous and it wasn't, it didn't do all the terrible things that it did, or it just had a few negative impacts on your sleep or whatever. Why would I do it when living without it is so much better? That my relationship with myself, with my, you know, my friends, my family, my work, my career, that has been so life-changing that I want other people to hear and to see and to have that vision for themselves because I created it for myself at a, a point in time when I was going through a huge amount, but I would like other people to see the light before having to go through something too traumatic to say to themselves, actually, I can do this. And I got a message from a girlfriend 
literally last night. Not a close girlfriend, a girlfriend I used to know at school. It was a direct message through my Instagram and it said, Hi, Kath, I just wanted to thank you. I've watched your Instagram and I've listened to all your podcast interviews and I have just completed three months of alcohol-free and it's been the most amazing thing I've ever done. I never would have done it if it wasn't for you and I'm never going back. And you know what? I had tears in my eyes. I was just like, oh, my gosh. You never know sometimes who's listening, whose life you might be touching through sharing your own experience with honesty, with truth, and that's what I try to do. I try to share it with as much honesty and truth as possible because I find when I'm most connected to people, it's when they're in that version of themselves that they're not ashamed to share all the, the messy bits. I want to make a wordless request to you to hold a vision for me. This one year point of me having met you and stopped drinking and being stewarded and shepherded by you. Thank you. It was great. And I feel great. And I'm holding a vision for myself now on a 10 or 20 year timeline because everything else feels too close. Like you said, I want to think of that as a whole new life. And my grandma just turned 95. So that's a lot of life ahead. And I have been going, oh God, that's too long. But now I'm going to do a Kath Elliott shift and reinvent it to be like, wow, imagine that. Look at all that life I've got ahead of me. So that's my kind of petition for you is please hold a vision off me just for one minute after we get off this call. And then my final question is, there are many ways to lead a life. What does that mean to you? My honest answer is that I now choose to lead my life from in deep sacred integrity with myself. That is where leadership comes from for me. It comes from being able to tend to all parts of myself and knowing that when I'm doing that, I am then able to lead and support other people in my life. And I wish we had more leaders who were tending to themselves and doing the work on themselves because we have examples of leaders all around us often and it's about ticking boxes, it's about all the degrees, it's about whatever it might be, but actually we have a responsibility to do a lot more and I'm a big supporter of somatic body work. That is where we release so much of our trauma and if we're keeping all of that in our body, which a lot of people do, We can't lead when we're trapped with all of this stuck emotion, right? Thanks, Kath. So where can we find you? So my website is thealcoholmindsetcoach.com or I am on Instagram at thealcoholmindsetcoach. Amazing. So please, everybody go over and follow Kath and check her out. And if you do think that you might have some kind of relationship with alcohol that you'd like to question or consider. Do you still do a discovery call? Yes, absolutely. So I offer a complimentary discovery call, which you can book on my website, a 45 minute discovery call, which is, which I'm always really happy to do. It's so important. So generous, so generous. So Kath, thank you so much. That was amazing. 
I believe there are many ways to lead a life and everybody has stories. And Kath, you blew my mind a couple of times today. The things I'm taking away from this are holding the vision for myself and for others. And especially when they are in some kind of turmoil and it feels very dull or draining that actually I can be in heaven with that if I can hold a vision for them. That just feels so lush and real. And it's amazing what we can't imagine for ourselves. Oh, that's so amazing too. Like we have BHAGs, big, hairy, audacious goals, wildly improbable goals, but these are things we can imagine. What is it that we can't imagine for ourselves that's coming in the future? That's just amazing. And tend to ourselves. There are portals waiting to open for us. And how can we tend to ourselves? And I noticed how tender Kath's voice came when she was talking about that as well. And also just straightforwardly in consensus reality, if you do think that you have some kind of relationship with alcohol that you would like to have a conversation about, Kath's a great person to talk to. She made such an unbelievable impact on my life. Like the five months that I spent with her, there's just no way I would have been able to navigate this without her support, without having been so much more miserable. And believe me, I was miserable. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm not now. And now I've got this tending, holding the vision and being in heaven with my vision. So thank you, Kath, so much for coming on here and for helping me and for being such a presence in the world of just questioning the many ways there are to lead a life. I'd like to say thank you to Laura Marushima for her admin support. And thank you again to you, Kath. Thank you, Sarah. Oh, so honoured. And just, I am going to hold that vision for you and yeah, just the unique, incredible light that you are in the world. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to these creative musings and stories of reinvention. And if it's Guests Week, big love and gratitude to our guests. Go follow them everywhere. Shout out to Laura Marushima for her podcast management and support. I would love if you would follow and subscribe this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and share with a friend you think would love or benefit from it. You can also find me at Sarah Brewer Creative on Facebook and Instagram and get on my occasional, very occasional newsletter list at sarahbrewer.com. I just love that you're here and I'll catch you the next time on the Legends Podcast. Rise like a phoenix, baby. And don't forget to take other people with you. Bye.